Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher John Shook. Naturalism, humanism, democracy, these are the modern offers to try to replace most of what religion does. Remember to visit commonsenseatheism.com for more episodes and articles about God, science, and morality. Dr. John Shook is a research associate in philosophy at the University of Buffalo. He has written and edited more than a dozen books and is co-editor of three philosophy journals. He is also the vice president of Center for Inquiry Transnational. John, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Luke. I'm delighted to be on your show. So apparently your job is to research philosophy and participate in public lectures and debates all around the world. So my first question to you is, how can I get your job? Oh, well, I am very lucky. As a vice president, there's plenty of administrative responsibilities for organizing events and educational opportunities all across the country, conferences and that sort of thing. And as you say, I also get a chance to try to become as expert as I can in all of the philosophical dimensions of secularism, humanism, and naturalism. But there are very few professional philosophy jobs like this one, and I'm enormously grateful to Paul Kurtz, who hired me, and of course to the Center for Inquiry, where I work. So maybe I can get your job if I suck up to Paul Kurtz a lot? <laughs> well, we all have our different ways of, of making an educational contribution. Frankly, uh, sometimes I get envious of the folks out there on the wild, wild web able to be their own interviewers and podcasters. So it's a great pairing up between us. Well, I suppose maybe it would help if I got a PhD in philosophy or something, huh? I'm always an advocate of more education, whatever the field. But <laughs> <laughs> so you're getting quite an education just running this podcast. That's another side benefit, all the experts. I know. I get to just call up experts and ask them all the questions I want to know. <laughs> You've designed your own graduate education. That's right. <laughs> So let's talk about the debate and argument over theism and naturalism, which, after the works of the new atheists at the bestseller list, is raging in America. Atheist philosopher Matt McCormick recently told me that he feels like when he puts out one fire over here, 20 new fires pop up over there because there's so many more religious philosophers of religion than there are secular ones. Is that how you feel, or what's the experience like for you? Oh, I can sympathize with that. But of course, religion and the theologies that try to defend religion have been around a lot, lot longer and have had a lot more people, very smart people, working very hard on them for, for centuries. So there's a tremendous amount of work to do if one wants to argue against all of these different kinds of theologies. I mean, this outbreak of new atheism is attention-grabbing to us now, but religions, of course, have long histories of interacting uh, with each other. So really, the vast resources of these various theologies comes from not debating with skeptics and with atheists, but rather debating against each other, of course, because they've been busily calling each other atheists for millennia. <laughs> <laughs> Us skeptics are now just putting ourselves in a crossfire battle that's uh, been raging since the dawn of history. Interesting. Well, you participate in a lot of the public debate about religion What's that like for you? It's been a mixed experience. I enjoy 
any opportunity to talk to student populations, particularly debating on college campuses. I've been teaching at the college level for, I can hardly believe it, 20 years now. Wow. So I'm a believer in the power of uh, education, and I think that debating can be a good exercise in pedagogy. You can learn an awful lot from witnessing a debate. It all, of course, depends on how the debate is conducted, and I've seen and participated in some good ones and some not-so-good ones. And I think it all depends on the spirit in which the debate is conducted. If both debaters are sincerely interested in trying to educate the listeners, then things can go rather well. But, of course, we've seen debates where one or both are more interested in engaging in rhetoric, pumping the intuitions of the audience, confirming what the audience already believes or wants to believe, pandering. And this can happen on both sides. So I'm not so impressed with debates that descend to that level. Well, what are some of the strategies taken by defenders of theism, and how have you learned to respond to them? Well, the easiest sort of debate, and ones that quickly have pedagogical value, are where on the religion side there's a presentation of evidence combined with rational argument, then on the skeptic side why the evidence isn't so good or doesn't even exist and why the arguments aren't so great. And this can be very stimulating, this sort of combination of evidentialist theology on the one side by the defender of religion, and then on the skeptic side, taking a critical look at the evidence, comparing it against, you know, whatever belief in a God is being offered, and, well, look, here, there isn't such a good fit between God and the evidence, and this God has all these sorts of intellectual difficulties involved, contradictions perhaps. Those sorts of debates are fairly straightforward, and but lately, though... I've seen on the lecture circuit, and I think others have too in the, in the debates, theologians starting off with entirely different tactics than presenting evidence and giving reasoned arguments from premises to conclusions. One that's very annoying right away is this business of the defender of religion saying, well, I'm arguing against an atheist. We know who the atheists are. They're the atheists who are absolutely sure that they can prove no God exists. Well, let's see if they can do that. Yeah. When that tactic is announced right from the start, it absolutely poisons matters because you've got a false definition of atheism, a shifting of the burden of proof, which is illegitimate debating tactics right up front, and this sort of rhetorical air of, well, this puffed-up know-it-all atheist needs some deflating. Let's all deflate him. Ha, 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 and the crowd loves that. Uh, it's not going to make for a good debate. I mean, first of all, atheism is not the position that it can be proven that no supernatural being exists. That's just a bad definition of atheism. This business of shifting the burden of proof, that can happen on either side. So, you know, on the skeptic side, we shouldn't do it either. We should divvy up the burden. And furthermore, this rhetorical attitude, as if the atheists are trying to know more than religious people, is just ridiculous because, of course, it's religious people who claim to have extraordinary knowledge about extraordinary yeah. supernatural goings-on. It's, it's the poor, skeptical atheist who doesn't know about these things that is taking the much humbler position. Yeah, the theist is the one who's saying, I know the origins of the universe, how it all came to be, what's going on in a supernatural, unobservable realm, what the mind of God is thinking. It's the theist who's making all these outrageous claims, and the atheist is just going, whoa, hold on a minute there. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a late symptom of something that's been going on on the religion side for about 150 years. They're not dumb for trying these tactics. 
what's been happening in the last 150 years is basically theology has rediscovered the power of agnosticism. What I, what I mean by that is, of course, on the skeptic side, agnosticism was coined as a word and used to try to say, hey, it's the skeptics who are taking the humbler agnostic position. We don't know. We can't prove. That's why we don't believe. But theology was suffering from its own problems, enlightenment, attacks against religious faith, arguments from people like Immanuel Kant saying mm. natural theology is dead and, and none of the pure logic arguments, like the ontological argument, are going to work either, which caused an eruption, a sort of crisis of confidence in Western theology. So you suddenly found theologians rediscovering sort of non-rational foundations for religion. You had outbreaks of piety and faith. Schleiermacher became very important. Religion is mostly about the emotions. Kierkegaard, William James with his pragmatism, the sense of religion as somehow making it smart to be a believer if that really helps you live your life, on down to the modernist theologians and the postmodernist theologians talking about how you really can't know God, so the thing to do, of course, is to have faith in God. And now this strategy is boiled down to, well, us religious believers we don't know God exists either. We're agnostics in that sense. That's why it's reasonable to have faith. Now, you see there's a big chasm there between <laughs> agnosticism yeah. and faith, but it's precisely that leap of faith that the theologians, many of them, are now trying to sell to lay people to keep them coming to church. I mean, there's a panic, I think, in theology because across the West, with the rise of secularism, Church attendance is dropping steadily, even in America, and new forms of religious belief are springing up, uh, religious humanism, pantheism, all sorts of nature worship, and so forth. No single one of these is becoming very large, but the cumulative effect is a panic attack on the theology side. So I think they're trying to tell people in the pews, look, don't panic. Nobody can prove anything about God. That's why you have faith, so just keep the faith and everything will be okay. <laughs> and you're seeing that sort of tactic even on the debating circuits. Yeah, well, and young people especially are really falling like flies out of the churches. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they, they're looking for best arguments on either side. The problem is when the theologian says, well, there are no <laughs> arguments for God. You know, you rather wonder what all the theology bluff and bluster is for anymore. It rather seems to me that if you go too far down that road to defend religion, you really aren't doing theology anymore. They're just abandoning the field. Religion itself is mostly a matter of emotion and ritual and social practice and non-rational, if not outright irrational. The point of theology, of course, was to supplement that with intellectual arguments using you know, logic and so forth. Well, if you've got a bunch of theologians running around saying, well, it's not really about logic, evidence, uh, this sort of thing. It's more about mystery and, and faith because you want to believe. That's just abandoning theology. Atheists are left with no one to really debate with. Well, in your experience, how do you think atheists should be either defending atheism or undermining the assumptions of religion? What kind of things work best? Well, you're going to need a broad array of strategies because, of course, both religion and its intellectual superstructure of theology are 
vast, complicated, well-defended, well-thought-out structures, yeah. there's no magic bullet. And, and I'll tell you, on the atheist side, I don't like it when atheists think that there is some single magic bullet. There isn't one. But nevertheless, we get books defending atheism, which are actually very simple for their length. They believe in one magic bullet that'll kill theology and or religion. Maybe the silver bullet is, well, look at all the terrible things that religion does in the world. Well, yeah, lots of things human beings do, do terrible things in the world. You know, religion is too amorphous to be killed with a single shot like that. Other books sort of assume that if you can knock down some of the best theological arguments, you've somehow struck at the heart of religion itself, but that's, of course, a category mistake. In mistaking the superstructure for the foundation, I think it's good work to try to knock down the theological arguments but no one should imagine that this is actually going to, in the long run, have much of an impact on religion itself. I mean, cultural anthropologists, sociologists of religion, psychologists of religion, anybody who really studies the worldwide phenomenon of religion and its long history knows that the sort of intellectual frosting on top of the cake is very different from the cake itself. So how do you go after the root of religion itself? Well, it's not going to be by complaining about the two towers in New York City, and it's not going to be pointing out jihad terrorists, and it's not going to be by laughing at creationists who think that the Earth is very young. This is just shadow puppet play. This is, this is theatrics. Instead, I think what has to be done is to understand very carefully, as many scientists in the social sciences and cognitive sciences are trying to do, understand why people have been religious in so many different ways for so long all around the world. And so you don't ridicule that. What you do is you try to understand it and, if possible, replace it. Now, that brings us to another huge topic. Can religion be piecemeal replaced by something better? And I think it can, and lots of atheists think it can. But, of course, now that's another broad array of replacement strategies and a tremendous amount of work. I've often thought that one of the important things that atheists can do is to just come out of the closet and just live their lives, you know, be good to people, enjoy your life, and be known as an atheist. And I think, you know, that worked pretty well for the gay movement, just coming out of the closet and all, everybody noticed, oh my gosh, I have, you know, three friends who are gay. I can't really think that they're despicable, evil human beings anymore. And so I think that would do a great deal of good if atheists just came out of the closet. But you're right, we can't just knock down religion. We have to provide a positive alternative. So how might atheists do that? Well, you pointed out how people who already do not believe in religion can be enormously comforted and protected with the public display of, hey, we happen to be atheists and we're proud of it and don't treat us like social pariahs and outcasts and try to eliminate the negative stereotypes that obviously religious people are going to have towards atheists. But aside from comforting people who are already atheists, it's not clear to me how this produces more atheists. Uh, I think it produces very few atheists. I think very few people convert from full-throttle religious belief into full-blown atheism merely through intellectual gymnastics. I know a few. You may be one of them, Luke, from what I gather from your blog. But this is a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction. Demographers tell us yeah. that people only very gradually drift from strong religious belief into 
some sort of mild agnosticism into perhaps occasionally outright atheism for mostly social, emotional, family reasons. And this makes sense because, of course, religion is mostly a social, emotional, psychological phenomenon. It's cultural. It's not primarily intellectual. So rejecting frosting, again, doesn't have anything to do with the cake. Now, you mentioned, on the other hand, atheists not only advancing their intellectual reasons for not believing, but trying to, quote, live good lives. And this gets to the point we touched on earlier about positive replacements for religion. If atheists can obviously demonstrate that they can live lives just as good as anyone else, if they can show that large amounts of skepticism, disbelief, agnosticism, and so forth doesn't harm society in any way, this can go a long way towards lending some confidence to religious believers that they don't need all the supernaturalism and the paranormal beliefs, that they can gradually move to a non-believing position without having to sacrifice anything important in their lives and perhaps improve their lives. So that Mm -hmm. positive effort, though, is really the other prong of the strategy, intellectual, but also practical. And unless atheists have a practical alternative to religion, it's going to make no difference whatsoever to religion. Religion has a long track record of swallowing heresies. So as a positive alternative, we're probably talking about a worldview, something that provides maybe purpose, morality, all these things that people really want and they don't want to give it up because they think it's only tied to religion. Precisely. Well, I think it takes three broad belief systems to replace most of religion. I'm not sure sure it can entirely replace religion, but let me just outlay what those three things are. First of all, to replace supernaturalism, you need a sound defense of the naturalistic worldview, and that's going to involve an explanation of why we ought to have confidence, for example, in things like scientific method rather than shaman witchcraft. The second is humanistic ethics, some sort of secular reason-based ethics that can explain why human beings are moral, how we can be even more moral, and why we don't need God in order to make us moral. And then the third component is some sort of political answer. Religions traditionally have had a great political role in stabilizing the social structure, authorizing political hierarchies, explaining why he's king and not her, you know, because God wants it that way and so forth. So you need a thoroughly secular politics. And since the Enlightenment, the humanistic replacement has been democracy. So naturalism, humanism, democracy, These are the modern offers to try to replace most of what religion does. So to the extent that an atheist can explain, justify, support, and live the naturalistic worldview, the humanistic ethos, and the uh, way of being a democratic citizen, that would go a long way towards uh, replacing the religious function in one's life. Well, you said that maybe there are some things that can't be replaced by a secular worldview. What would that be? Well, for example, fear of death 
is often cited as a major inspiration of religion in the first place and a major drive mm -hmm. for why people want to continue to be religious. Neither naturalism, humanism, or democracy are going to somehow eliminate people's natural anxieties about dying and what happens after death. I myself never had the slightest worry about death after it suddenly came to me that I'd been dead for 13 some odd billion years before I was born. In effect, I was not alive. And I don't find this a terribly tragic matter. So what if I'm going to be dead an additional 13 billion or more, however the universe lasts, after my body expires? I think rather what's happened is that religions have seriously inflated the ego. And some religions have regarded the solution as guaranteeing immortality for the personal ego. Now, not all religions do this. For example, major varieties of Buddhism and Taoism and so forth, they try to solve the problem by saying, well, look, you shouldn't regard the personal ego as anything of serious value in the first place. Then you don't need to have the anxieties of death because you weren't that special. <laughs> But nevertheless, they're struggling with this business of the inflation of the personal ego. Once you become convinced that you are so darn important and it would be horribly tragic for you not to not exist, then supernaturalistic religions promising immortality seem like a perfectly obvious satisfactory answer that neither naturalism, humanism, nor democracy could even begin to approximate. Now, there is an irony because humanism is accused of exaggerating the human ego. <laughs> right? uh, humanism may carry the virus infection in it, even though it has dropped supernaturalism. So I think humanism itself also has to deal with this ego problem. And indeed, religions aren't shy about pointing this out. You know, the number one complaint against humanism has long been from religions. Oh, you humanists, you think that you're gods, you know. You think that humans are the end-all and be-all of existence. Now, let me give you another example. I get emails constantly from pro-environmentalist folks they say, well, this humanism business is lovely, but of course I could never be a humanist, you know. We're environmentalists. They're fundamentally incompatible because if you're a humanist, by definition, you must value the human over everything else. It's humanism that's been destroying the environment when religion doesn't get a chance. Oh, dear. You know, this, whoa. You know, <laughs> that, that's a problem because, of course, the major intellectuals behind the ecological environmentalist movements all regarded themselves as humanists. So what is going on here? Well, we may have a problem with labels, but there's this deeper problem of whether or not humanism can overcome egotism and selfishness. And I think we better look ourselves in the mirror and make sure we can solve that one before we complain too much about religions. Hmm, that's interesting. Well, going back just briefly to your point about the fear of death being a major issue. Yes. I agree with that. I see that even though I kind of like you just never really had an emotional problem with death. I mean, it is an emotional, not a rational problem. Yeah. I probably had more of a problem with it when I was a believer and I was, you know, worried that, well, maybe I'd mess something up somewhere and I would go to hell. Right, right. But now I just don't feel scared about it at all. But I was speaking recently to one of my friends, and she's got a great life. She's, you know, travels around the world. She's getting a, her first novel published by a major publisher after mm. a bidding war and all this kind of stuff. So she's doing great. Mm. But I asked her about her beliefs just real casually. You know, you say you're an agnostic, but, you know, I'm not an agnostic about fairies, and you probably don't believe in fairies. So what does agnosticism mean to you? 
and she immediately went to the fear of death. She said, you know, I don't know, but I just don't even want to think about not existing anymore. And she immediately, it was obvious she was fighting back tears. And so I just, you know, completely changed the subject and made a few jokes and got everybody laughing. But it was just, it was amazing to me because for me, I just don't have that fear at all. But for her, she's living such a wonderful life. She just can't bear to think that it would end. Right. I think that must be a problem for a lot of people. Well, another strategy may be to try to remind people about what is truly of value in and of their lives. If you asked a person like your friend that you mentioned or or a family member or anybody you could be honest with, you said, look, what really is valuable from an objective standpoint about your life? What what is good about it? What makes a life good? What what really is of lasting value to you as a human being? And I think you would find on this list many things about, well, I'm a supporter of this organization or I'm helping this cause or I'm part of this social institution that I think is doing good work in the world or I've made these intellectual contributions, right? Now, these sorts of things all have one thing in common. They're all thoroughly social, meaning we are woven of threads not of our own making. We're part of a social fabric because when we were infants, we were woven into this much and vastly larger and more important social fabric. It's been said that, thank goodness, authors eventually die because only then can their books truly live. Now reflect on that for a minute. The problem when an author is still alive is you think you can figure out if you get stuck what the book means by running and asking the author. When the author is dead, you finally are forced to converse directly with the ideas in the book. It's the ideas that are immortal and justly so, if they have any worth. The individual just has an individual personal ego. It's just a temporary way station where ideas have arrived, been transformed, put on other trains, and sent on for other minds to digest. So if you have that sort of social fabric understanding, that at least helps you realize what is of true value in your own life are things not of really your own making. So again, in a sort of roundabout way, you can try to see ways of lessening this unhealthy exaggeration of of the value of the personal, the private, the ego, the center of consciousness. The center of consciousness is extinguished with the death of the body, but nothing of value, from my perspective, is truly lost if you've communicated it and passed it on. And in fact, the most important things are passed on. They don't die with you. So again, perhaps some greater perspective on who we truly are as human beings can help. I don't think our essence is some sort of immaterial, unique soul that's entirely private. Far from it. I think most of what we are is in our friends. And that's a comforting thought. Well, I feel like I need to pause for 20 minutes and just (laughs) ponder. (laughs) But you see, these are humanistic notions that themselves have origins long ago. Humanism has been trying to tell an interesting story about what's truly worthwhile in human beings without all of this supernatural business. One problem, though, is that, like you spoke about before, humanism seems to have a definition problem or an identity problem. And I actually ran into that a while ago. I posted a post on my blog called Why I'm Not a Humanist, and I just went to the Humanist Manifesto and read what it said, and uh, it seemed to imply that moral value was centered on 
homo sapiens and yep. i just didn't agree with that so yep. but there are many varieties of humanism so what kinds of positive world views could humanism provide well if you go back to any manifesto written before about 1970 you're going to see premises that do only have something to say about the value of human beings the interesting thing, of course, about those humanist manifestos is that they are all products and aftershock of the Enlightenment. And the number one job of humanistic enlightenment was to try to emphasize that all of humanity has equal dignity and worth, which, of course, 250 years ago was an utterly radical and counterintuitive notion for the vast majority of humanity. I mean, this was right. the, the age of monarchy, slavery, and barbarism. So, you know, you have to recognize the tool for the times. Now, it may be that we need to change the tool. In other words, if we think that the goal of equal dignity and worth and justice for all humanity has been accomplished, then we can say, well, you know, the, we can move on and, and revise the tool, maybe change the name, move on to other agendas. I don't think we're quite there yet. I do not think humanity is doing a very good job at all of guaranteeing equal dignity and worth of all human beings. We've only taken baby steps since 200 years ago. So I think this business of emphasizing human equality and human rights is hardly done business. Yeah. So you have to forgive the humanist manifestos for that. Now, of course, humanism has always had what I call a conservative tailing edge and a pioneering leading edge. And in the middle is what I call progressive humanism. Pick any century from medieval humanism to the present and just take a snapshot, you're going to see the tailing conservative humanism, the very active center of progressive humanism, and the thin leading edge of pioneering humanism. Let me give you an example. If you take a snapshot right now, conservative humanism is saying we need to keep making sure that the achievements of humanism past are not violated in any way. That's the number one priority. And of course, the great achievement has been the notion of equal human rights, such as enshrined in the American Constitution and now other European constitutions. Into this conservative category would be, for example, libertarians. Libertarians, of course, are obsessed with guaranteeing rights. Progressive humanists say, well, you know, that these rights that we've achieved are lovely, but we, we need to add some rights to the table. For example, let's say a right uh -huh. to health care or a right to women's equality or, let's say, special protections for disadvantaged ethnic groups or cultural groups. Not to throw away the old rights, but to supplement them with new rights. Pioneering humanism would be sort of what Peter Singer calls expanding the circle. And unless humanism is continually expanding the circle, it dies. Humanism is all about expanding the circle of care and concern. So I see pioneering humanists trying to protect the fetus. I see pioneering humanists trying to protect our fellow animals on this planet. I see pioneering humanists talking about environmentalism in almost reverential tones, trying to encourage us to be reverent and pious towards the entire ecosystem, perhaps the entire globe, the planet. And these sorts of pioneering humanists, they don't get much respect sometimes from the progressive or the conservative humanists. They're regarded as a little too wild. Take, for example, the pioneering humanists who say, well, we're doing a good job, a fairly good job of protecting babies. Why stop at the arbitrary point of natural birth? We need to do more to protect fetuses. Well, you see that immediately clashes with the progressive humanist agenda of guaranteeing women full reproductive control over their bodies. 
so you see you've got a political clash set up. Now, there, there are all sorts of obvious compromises on both sides that could be made. But nevertheless, you're going to see these sorts of inevitable clashes between these three phases of humanism. And I don't mean to suggest that you can narrowly categorize all humanists into one or the other. On any given subject, you or I might be a pioneering or a progressive humanist on another topic. We may suddenly get very conservative. Humanists are complicated too. So we carry these contradictions and conflicts in ourselves, and that's the fun of living in a democracy. We've got the battle inside ourselves as much as the battle between interest groups. My general point in going down this road was to simply say, if humanism stops growing, it dies. We have to respect pioneering humanists, even if we think they're a little too radical and a little too soon. That's why they're pioneers, (laughs) you know. I mean, turn the dial back 300 years ago. Take another snapshot of humanism, right? Your conservative humanists were saying, look, we've got fabulous rights as British citizens under our King George. Don't mess with it. The progressive humanists were saying, oh, come on, constitutional democracy would do much better job of protecting the rights that we really want to have. And if we can't have them as English citizens, we're going to have to have them as American citizens. Pioneering humanists were saying, why can't women vote? (laughs) Right? Abigail Adams writing to her husband, John, saying, look, John, you've written men into your Declaration of Independence. Are you going to kind of help us women out? Well, the women didn't get the help (laughs) in the 18th century, you know, but the pioneering humanists won the battle in the early 20th century, you see. So my larger point about humanism is simply that at any given historical moment, you've got these three phases simultaneously. You've got the conservative, the progressive, and the pioneering wing of humanism, and this is a healthy sign. We have to respect the pioneering humanist. We have to try to make as much progress in increasing the amounts of rights and decreasing the amount of injustices while at the same time making sure we conserve the fruits of past victories. This is enormously complicated, and it's enough to keep humanists very, very busy. In fact, I wish more non-believers would spend more of their time thinking very hard about humanism and advancing the positive cause of humanism than uh, bitterly denouncing and arguing against religion. I understand why some have to do that, but I think if humanists are viewed as only bitterly attacking theology and religion, we're going to rightly be categorized as just troublemakers. People have this practical view that you've got to provide an equal or better alternative before you're going to be taken seriously. And I don't have a problem being held to that pragmatic standard. No humanist should. Well, that brings up the issue of purpose as well, because you Mm -hmm. just talked about a lot of purposes that humanists have and that we need more people participating in. And so when people say, what purpose do you have without God? It just kind of bewilders me because (laughs) pick anything. I mean, there's so many purposes to pick and it's way better than serve and worship a supernatural dictator. Right. There's so many great purposes that we can be participating here on earth with the things that are real and matter. Exactly. Whenever I hear that complaint, I always say, I don't see how you could have a purpose with God. I mean, this business of a God deciding everything for you, and in some of the more narrow theologies, knowing everything you're going to do before you do it, deciding all the important events in your life, where's the initiative, responsibility, control? It seems to me, as it has occurred to many secular thinkers, for millennia, 
if you hand over too much responsibility to a god, there's hardly anything left for human beings. And that strikes at the very root of ethical responsibility. In other words, if for everything that happens and everything that you do, your answer is, well, God wanted it that way, God told me to do it that way, God this, God that, you're revealing yourself to be a robot or a puppet, not a person deserving respect for your own ethical responsibility. Supernaturalism rots the core of ethical responsibility. Humanism revives it. Now, you mentioned earlier worrying about definitions of humanism. I have a very simple two-part core definition of humanism that captures all historical humanisms and captures the essence of the three flavors of humanism I mentioned earlier. It's very simple. Humanism, first and foremost, stresses that you have to take moral responsibility in this life. The second part is you have to take responsibility for trying to spread what is valuable to all life. So you see how you get the emphasis solely on human needs off of this sort of core definition of humanism that I'm offering. Although only us humans can take this kind of very high intellectual moral responsibility for what's going on. I mean, unless and until the the dolphins start helping out that we haven't even figured out how to communicate. So for now, it's us, right? But (laughs) we have to take responsibility for the whole planet. So you see how this would encompass the best of what is in environmentalism. So if that's the core of humanism, the focus on our ethical responsibilities in this life and this mission to advance the opportunities for living a good life to all life, you can see that this is going to be pretty incompatible with supernaturalism on many fronts. Uh, Supernaturalism can disintegrate a person's ability to take moral responsibility for their behavior. A supernatural God laying down moral dictates to be unhesitatingly followed destroys intellectual initiative for trying to figure out what is best for ourselves. And it certainly eliminates the possibility of people saying, well, now we're in a new pickle. We're going to have to get creative and invent some new ethical principles and try them out because, you know, humanity hasn't seen this one before. Well, no. I mean, if you're blindingly obedient to a supernatural God, you're just going to sit around and wait for either God to tell you what to do or for God to solve the problem. So I don't understand how you could live a purposeful and ethical life with God. It's precisely humanism that maximizes the opportunities for these sorts of very important things. Well, John, you spoke about three different fronts on which atheists have to provide a positive alternative to religion. One was in politics, and most people are familiar with democracy as a Mm -hmm. secular alternative to religious politics. And Mm -hmm. we talked about ethics and what humanism can provide for an ethical worldview. So the third part is the what's in the universe and how does it work. So Mm -hmm. what is naturalism? Naturalism is essentially the view that everything that is real is best comprehended by human intelligence using what I call the three basic tools. One is common sense experience. The second one is reason, by which I mean um, our basic logical apparatus, uh, deduction, induction, and abduction are are the three most commonly cited basic logical forms. And science as the third part. So, So common sense experience, rationality, 
and science. And these aren't, of course, three things alien to each other. They're, when done best, interconnected. So common sense experience has a sort of intuitive rationality all its own. We try to properly teach this to children, you know, so that they can be sane adults. Rationality isn't some sort of set of rules that have come down from on high or have some otherworldly platonic existence or truth. They're just sort of the refined tools of common sense inference. In other words, Homo sapiens 20,000 years ago were doing rudimentary kinds of deduction, induction, and abduction. It's just we've really sharpened these tools using very precise language nowadays. And then, of course, science is just the combination of experience and rationality. In other words, it's trying to use our best observational experiences of the world that we can all agree upon in order to reason out what must be going on behind the scenes. Experience sort of gives us the panoramic scenic view of the here and now, what's sort of before our eyes, the phenomenal world. And rationality can help us try to infer what is going on behind the scenes. So science, of course, is very busily postulating the unseen. In other words, what distinguishes naturalism from supernaturalism is not that one dreams up fantasies of invisible things no one can see in ordinary experience. Science does that, <laughs> right? Think about atoms, right? But rather, it's the experimental testing of these inferences that distinguishes the scientific method, particularly the use of the logical tool of what's called abduction or reasoning to the best hypothesis. Basically, the idea is, well, nature has this sort of regular pattern of such and such things going on. I wonder what's going on under the surface that would explain this phenomenon. Well, we're going to postulate that some currently hidden entity or process or natural law is responsible. But, of course, we can't get at it directly. For example, you can't see gravity. Strictly speaking, you can only see the effects of gravity, right? So how do we know that there is this natural force called gravity? Well, if there was such a thing as this attractive force between any two masses, then you would see such and such regular phenomenon all over the place. And then you do the experiments to verify that you can indeed see the repetition of the pattern everywhere where you want to. If you can't at some point, if an experiment fails, this is a disconfirmation of your postulate, and you may have to revise your postulate or perhaps replace it altogether. So this is the scientific method. It tries to explain what's going on in the phenomenal world with a story about the unseen world, but the unseen world had better be testable, predictable, verifiable in its effects, you see. And that's why science rules out postulating supernatural agents, you see. Follow, follow my reasoning just for a minute here. The whole point of postulating an invisible person who can go through walls or the whole point of postulating a deity with supernatural powers running around uh, causing trouble for human beings, the whole point of this, of course, is to postulate an agent, something like a person. But people are intrinsically unpredictable. That's the point of their being persons. They may have personalities and characters. They may be somewhat reliable and somewhat predictable. But the point of attributing to them personality is, of course, to be able to explain when things go awry and 
unexpected. You, you don't know why gods do things they do. You can't explain why God lets this tragedy happen but allows this miracle to happen. That's the point of postulating an agent. Now, when we attribute agency to each other in the human world, you have to do it because we are only partially predictable to each other. And that's probably a good thing for other reasons. But at any rate, when you start throwing it out into nature, it violates scientific methods. Because you see, by definition, you cannot experimentally test the activities of a supernatural agent. By definition, it's an agent. It is partially unpredictable. So scientific method demands do not postulate agents. Instead, postulate entities that have lawful characters. They always behave the same way under the same conditions. Under different conditions, they may behave differently. I mean, water behaves very differently at 200 degrees Celsius than it does at minus 200 Celsius. That's okay. But the point is, same conditions, same experimental results. It's reduplicable, right? Everybody can see what's going on. The point of religion, of course, is to utterly evade this manner of postulating unseen things. So again, to repeat, it's not that supernaturalism postulates weird, invisible things going on and naturalism doesn't. Trust me, scientists postulate utterly bizarre, counterintuitive, invisible things going on, right? Listen to a cosmologist try to explain the Big Bang or, or a physicist trying to explain the behavior of atoms, right? Yeah. Rather, the point is that what is being postulated by science, although invisible, has characteristic energies and powers that always behave the same way under the same conditions. We're not talking about agency here. Agency is inherently unpredictable. It's religion that uses abduction in order to postulate agents, ghosts, woodland spirits, Thor in the heavens throwing his hammer around and so forth. And thus, religion is inherently immune from any sort of experimental confirmation. And that's the fundamental difference between religion and science, not what it postulates, but how it tests and verifies what it postulates. The naturalistic worldview is content to believe in only those realities that are confirmed by common sense experience, compatible with logical reasoning, and confirmable by science. Whether or not anything else is real, we must be agnostic and skeptical. The naturalist is perfectly happy to confess that there are vast mysteries out beyond the light of knowledge, this is the business of being a humble, rational person. It's the supernaturalist that insists that the mind must go out into the misty darkness and continue to believe in things that really have no sound intellectual basis. But again, we've just returned to the original point. The fundamental function of religion is precisely to come up with fanciful stories and tales about what must remain utter mysteries. Well, and another way to explain about the difference between science and religion is that, yeah, they both postulate invisible things, but the way science postulates it is in terms of really specific predictions about what would happen if this were true, whereas religion can just postulate, well, eh, you know, anything could happen. And so <laughs> there's right. no way to prove or disprove that. I mean, you would think that an all-good, all-powerful God that theory would predict that there wouldn't be very much pointless suffering, but there's lots right. of pointless suffering, and, and theists yep. don't think that that's a evidence against God. So yep. if nothing can disprove your theory, you don't have a theory that you can defend either. And you know, interestingly enough, 
theologians, if they're not careful, fall into this same problem, as revealed, of course, in the problem of evil. Medieval theology, under a lot of pressure from Greek philosophy and the very early stirrings of experimental science, suddenly decided, well, look, we can do you one better. We can make our God intellectually understandable. And what happened was, of course, that the theologians tried to pin down God with very specific characters, attributes, qualities, properties of God that never change, that are already perfect, right? And so you get the medieval list, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, and there's a long list of perfections depending on which medieval theologian you read. But at any rate, the theologians immediately got into trouble. Number one, the various properties attributed to God can get in the way of each other. In other words, perhaps omnipotence is perhaps either inherently self-contradictory or perhaps contradictory with another property of God and so forth. Furthermore, does God have free will? Mm. (laughs) You can get into contradictions pretty fast trying to explain how a perfect God could also have free will because ordinarily we mean by free will, doing something somewhat unpredictable, but God already knows everything that he's going to do. In some sense, he necessarily must do it. But if you must do something, that's the very opposite of having freedom. So God is the most unfree thing, follow this line of reasoning. Anyway, that keeps theologians very busy. Penetrating further into the ethical realm, of course, you come to the problem of evil. How would a specific God that must guarantee the best of all possible worlds, you know, according to certain medieval theologians, permit horrible disasters like the great Lisbon earthquake of which Leibniz was trying to explain had to happen and Voltaire made fun of him in his satire Candide. Or now we have Haiti, right? 200,000 dead. How could God permit this? So once again, theologians can tie themselves up trying to explain how somehow this is part of a better vision. But I think theologians are smarter by saying, well, wait a minute, what's the original point of religion? to postulate an unpredictable, partially unknowable supernatural agent that can therefore explain anything that happens. Sort of the Pat Robertson view, right? If some horrible tragedy happens, it must be because God, unbeknownst to us, had something against the Haitians because of a deal with the devil 300 years ago or some ridiculous nonsense that we heard Pat Robertson recently spout. So if you've got an inherently unpredictable, mostly mysterious God, it makes doing religion much easier, but of course it makes doing theology much harder. (laughs) Yeah, they can't win either way because if God is unpredictable, then they can't offer any evidence. There's no testable hypotheses that turn out to be confirmed. And then if God is predictable, it turns out that the predictions are false. I mean, it's not just the problem of evil. It's the theory that God did it would never predict an incomprehensibly vast universe on which the humans that he cares about are incredibly small and unimportant. It wouldn't predict that there are so many atheists. It wouldn't predict that the way that he would communicate with humans is to send a Jewish carpenter to backwards part of the Middle East and not give them any life-saving medical knowledge or anything, but instead talk about how the world is going to end. I mean, this is all just ridiculous. It doesn't fit the theory at all. And so either you can't provide evidence for God because he's unpredictable, or the evidence disconfirms God. Precisely. And again, we've arrived at the point made earlier. Religion is essentially about providing, quote, explanations for things that are beyond the human intellect, primarily for the purposes of comforting us and for trying to keep us 
in line. Mark Hauser recently came out with another excellent study. I blogged about it at the Center for Inquiry blog, Free Thinking. It's becoming clear that religion is a rather recent cultural strategy trying to solve what is a very, very old problem going back to when our ancestors were first trying to figure out how to be far more social than our other primate cousins. The gods are pleased by regular orderly human conduct that doesn't disrupt the social order. Gods will punish violations. So the question then becomes, are there non-supernatural alternatives for trying to maximize personal comfort and social cooperation. On the naturalism side, of course, science and technology, especially modern medicine and these sorts of things, have done an enormous job of improving human comfort and trying to hold at bay, at least for a while, the worst of the diseases and illnesses. You know, Of course, we have science credit for that. It's, it's not a miracle when a doctor can save a patient's life after a horrible car accident. It was the doctor's training and skill. And hundreds of years of very careful experiments and disconfirming of theories and all that. Precisely. So the scientific culture is proving its enormous pragmatic worth. On the political side, although democracy is still young, I think we can safely say now that democracy is as worthy, if not more worthy, than any other form of large-scale political organization ever attempted. Not that democracy is perfect. Remember what I said earlier about the conservative, progressive, and pioneering humanism wings. They're all busily at work trying to shape the future of democracy, and, and that's fine. You've got to keep trying to improve your tool, but it's clearly a far better tool than anything described in the Bible. I mean, there's no mass democracy in the Bible. Any mention of, quote, the masses getting uppity and deciding to do something is always a problem in the Bible. The prophets warning them against it or the good king overriding it and so forth. So democracy is not anywhere positively endorsed in the Bible. And Enlightenment humanism had to overcome that horrible prejudice, likewise slavery. So uh, there's always improvements to be made, but on the political side, I think it's fairly clear that, at least in the West, theocracy is clearly a very, very minority view, and I don't anticipate a return to monarchy. Well, we were talking earlier about how theism doesn't explain a lot of things very well. One of those things is the diversity of religions and contradictory supernatural experiences, but recently naturalism has started to offer more successful explanations of those phenomena. Yes, that's right. There's fascinating new interdisciplinary fields springing up overnight, and it's hard to keep track of them, but we must try. Some of them suggest that you would expect to see enormous cultural variety of religions precisely because aside from some certain basic functions that every religion must fulfill, the imagination can richly create visions of supernatural goings-on without any other constraints. I mean, they're not constrained by the actual lives of the human beings that have the religion, because as we've said earlier, almost anything that happens tends to confirm the religion rather than disconfirm it, right? Furthermore, just different cultures in relative isolation from each other will develop different imaginative supernaturalisms, much like we see different cultures invent a tremendous variety of art forms. 
it's the essential functions that all religions perform that is highly amenable, as you were saying, to anthropological and sociological and, and cognitive science study. For example, a huge fan of Scott Atran really has had a big impact. And before that, of course, Pascal Boyer's book, Religion Explained, the authors themselves realized that despite the ambitious titles, we're only taking baby steps. But it does yeah. look as if we can account for why religion would be a very, one might almost say, smart strategy for human beings living in very primitive conditions. And if that can be told as a plausible story, you simultaneously have a naturalistic account of why human beings would invent and sustain religions. And on the humanistic side, you would have the start of a plausible account of how, theoretically, they could gradually be replaced by smarter cultural alternatives. You see, there's nothing a priori necessary about any cultural artifact. They're cultural, by definition. They can be changed and evolved, merged into others, or discarded completely in favor of the new model. And like you said, there are so many different disciplines contributing to this, and they're all developing models of how religion might be explained in some aspect and then testing them against the evidence that we see. And so we've got you know, sociobiological explanations, cognitive science explanations, uh, cultural explanations, all these different fields working together to form a picture of why we see religion in the way that we do in the world. Yes, ideally working together. You know, uh, we also complain about the fragmentation of the separate disciplines, although usually most sure. researchers uh, are more careful. The shelves are now bulging with books advocating more of these silver bullet explanations of religion. There's no single silver bullet to explain religion. It's not just propagation of memes. There's no gene for any individual religious phenomenon, much less religion entirely. It's clear that religion, as we know it, is a relatively recent cultural artifact. You know, there's no direct evolutionary development of a religion module in our brain. Rather, religion is a free rider on much, much older modules that human beings have had to use to communicate with each other in social groups, to detect agents, to deal with moral conflicts, and, and so forth. So it makes sense that you would have many different fields studying many different aspects of the religious phenomenon, but simultaneously they'll also be studying religion's connections to the deeper human needs and ways that we've adapted to try to meet those needs as a species. Well, this is an extraordinarily complicated picture, as, as you mentioned. Yeah, but there is sort of a basic picture that sounds pretty plausible uh, I wonder if you would share with us the basic picture that's most compelling to you. Religion is natural for Homo sapiens, perhaps much in the way that art is natural for Homo sapiens. It looks like us doing sophisticated artistic technique, not terribly old, clearly not millions of years old, right? Less than a million years old, perhaps less than 500,000 years old. Just as art developed out of much older human capacities that we needed to survive as a species. Likewise, religion. Religion, of course, takes on some of the toughest problems of humanity. It's the most sensible, non-rational solution that human beings have used as a species. 
you'd almost expect to see religions arise with their counterintuitive notions of violations of natural law and, and agent accounts of why horrible things happen over which we have no over control. Precisely if you've got a species with enough cognitive development to realize, wow, we're going to die. And wow, we're in a deep, deep pickle. And boy, is it really hard to sustain social structures over time, much less generations. So with religion evolving as a social artifact in order to try to handle some of the toughest problems of humanity under horribly primitive and ignorant conditions, it becomes much easier to have an understanding, if not even sympathy, for all of the work that has gone into religions. I mean, short of hunting and the preservation of food and raising families, human beings have put a lot of energy in, into religions. There must have been some sort of payoff. So yeah. what we would expect is that by now, the world's religion would be immense repositories of dramatic mixtures of utter fantasy, confusing paradox, and rich wisdom. In other words, religion for most of Homo sapiens history, has been the repository of our best intellectual efforts at trying to figure out who we basically are, what have we got to fear, and how can we have hope? In a certain sense, I myself am a religious atheist. Well, let me clarify that before you know people go crazy. What I mean is, if you have an immense storehouse of human wisdom trying to solve common human problems that we still have, you would be foolish to ignore it completely. You ought to try to sift through it. And when humanism, I think, can try to sift through the world's religions for the worthy nuggets of ethical wisdom, it makes itself much, much smarter. There is really, actually, if you think about it, no alternative for humanism. I mean, there have been secular thinkers and, and atheist thinkers and humanist thinkers who thought, well, we can throw everything that the ancestors believed out the window and by some sort of sheer intellectual act of pure new imaginative creativity or maybe a priori reasoning from logic alone, we can derive the moral rules that we ought to live by. No, <laughs> that's not a plausible story, and the intellectuals that have tried this have been spectacular failures. So again, if you combine common sense wisdom with the logical structures of reasoning, you get something like an ethical science. Well, and we need a lot of help with that. There are so many questions that need more research and more work, and there's just no end to the questions that we need to answer when we take the responsibility for morality onto ourselves. Exactly, and as many people have pointed out, it may be that few of us are really able to take on that full responsibility. This is perhaps the deepest problem for humanism in its current infancy stage. You can look around the world and see the vast majority of people utterly unprepared and indifferent for taking this sort of very important ethical responsibility onto their own shoulders when they're living on $4 a day or suffering horrible social injustices. But nevertheless, this does not mean that we can avoid our responsibility where we see it. The fact that most of humanity right now can't be as humanistic as we are is as irrelevant as it was to America's founding fathers when they looked across the planet and said, well, very few people are ready for democracy. Nevertheless, we will try the experiment where we can here and now. 
And I think that is a worthy humanist purpose that is honorable and courageous. Well, what do you think then are the prospects for naturalism and humanism? Well, on the naturalism side, the prospects are exceedingly good. Really, theology has given up disputing science's intellectual battle. Theology has retreated to the edges of the light of knowledge and is talking more about the mysteries than trying to actually compete with science anymore. So science is the lone challenger in the field of trying to explain what's actually going on in the nature around us. But what we have to do on the political side is to continue to advocate for social justice and rights around the world, some sort of minimum set to try to reduce the worst of the oppression, try to get population growth under control. We have this huge looming environmental crisis over our heads. That is exceedingly frightening. We may not be sure what the cause is, but you can't deny that the uh, polar bears are going to be doing nothing but swimming pretty soon. You know, that you can't controvert that evidence. The global challenges are simply huge, and, and uh, humanists must take on these global challenges and have something to say about them. Really, at this stage, all humanist ethics has to be planetary ethics. This is a point that's been made for 20 years by my mentor, Paul Kurtz, and we need to all get on board with this. The problems besetting us as a species are now entirely planetary in scope, and unless we have some very courageous thinking and problem-solving going on, uh, we may be doomed as a species on this planet. <laughs> well, that's very hopeful of you. Hey, humanism is all about taking responsibility. And it's no fun to take responsibility, but as I said, it's the more courageous and honorable path, and we must not shrink from it. Well, I've been encouraged that even though most people will change their worldview for social and emotional reasons, that there are actually a lot of people who are coming out of religion because of Richard Dawkins or because of John Loftus' blog or even my blog. I've gotten a lot of people who have written me and said, your work or Richard Dawkins' work or whoever is really influential in making me realize that the myth I'd grown up with was incorrect. Sure. And so there are a lot of new people who are coming into atheism and really maybe don't know what the positive alternative is. So I think an interview like this can be really helpful to them. Where else should people go when they're looking for things to think about in terms of a positive replacement for their religious worldview? Well, oh my goodness. The, the, fortunately, the shelves, as you know, are bulging. Barnes and Noble yes. and, and Borders now have shelves devoted. They'll put a little sticker there that says atheism. But really, that's just the opening wedge, as we've said. You know, when atheists say, well, it's lovely, but is, is there all to atheism just complaining about religion? No, it better be way more than that. So now we need to move on and look to intellectuals who are advocating Again, this pro-democratic, pro-liberation, pioneering humanism for the planet. And here we can read intellectuals really too many to count. So find a cause and passionately devote yourself to some part of it. Don't be daunted by uh, the size and scale of the problems. We're, we're bigger and more powerful than we know. And in fact, when it comes to planetary ethics, we should not be afraid of working together cooperatively with people who are still of a religious persuasion. Keep in mind that if you're dealing with planetary problems upon which four-fifths of planet are religious, it may be that the most effective short-term solution 
for severe planetary ethical problems is in fact more religion, not less. Now, I deliberately am provoking you, but I'm in my humanism pedestal now, and you're going to hear just a very brief profession of humanist faith, if you will. Look, I said earlier that the vast repository of ethical wisdom on the planet resides in religions. That means that you would, in the short term, probably be able to find a more creative shortcut solution to a planetary problem with some sort of planetary religion. And this makes sense from the side of the study of religion. The point of religion is to provide immediate, easy to remember, and very compelling and comforting solutions to what seem like overwhelming, horrible problems. But they can be highly motivating. In other words, uh, Scott Atran talks about this in one of his studies. He found that the tribe that did the best at protecting a certain very valuable stretch of rainforest was precisely the tribe that had the supernatural religion that said that there were very important spirits to be respected in those trees. And so the government gave them the power and responsibility, and voila, they did the best. In other words, humanists and atheists should not be surprised if a sort of global environmentalist, religious, quasi spiritual, sort of common approach emerges from the various world religions. And if humanists poo-poo it, we do it at our peril and we will be sidelined. At any rate, I'm not claiming that religion is better than non-religion. This new global spiritualism that may emerge, with or without atheist help, had better rely on science or else it's going to be irrelevant and counterproductive. And I think to the extent that we can agree on the thing to be achieved, namely the saving of the planet, we should all pull at the same oars here and not worry too much about why you're motivated to save the planet. Again, this is a short-term solution over the next 100 to 200 years. In the very long run, obviously, I hope, as many non-believers hope, that religion can gradually be replaced by entirely intellectual methods. But nevertheless, we may not have that long to wait. Dr. Shook, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, this interview was just delightful. I thank you very much for it.